This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap and BitCasino. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. All right, everyone. What a beautiful day. Happy Friday. I don't even know what day you're listening to this. Probably Tuesday or Thursday, or it doesn't even matter. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem. Today with my super good friend, Omar Osden. And you are listening to Untold Stories, where twice a week together with you, my best friends, my my lovers, my family members, whatever we want to call each other, we are what we are. But together, we get to dive deep with some of the coolest freaking people in the whole entire world, the most brilliant people, and the ones who have decided to bootstrap what we call this crazy Bitcoin and crypto industry, and not just bootstrap it, but make it their own. And to really understand where we are now and where we're going, we have to understand where we came from. And one of the most important parts of of our industry is how we all kind of work together. It doesn't matter if you're in the US or you're in China, we've all from the beginning, the ethos was just constantly working together. And there are very few people actually who really, Omar, you're like the, the, the unofficial, unappointed or the appointed, unelected mayor of like crypto China to the rest of the world, because very few people really, really understand everything from, from 10 years ago until now, just to give everyone a little bit of a background. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Charlie, really happy to be here. So excited. You're the uh, founder and CEO of Rocktree, a legal and finance professional service platform focused on the blockchain industry. You have been doing this. Uh, you're a securities attorney by by trade and back, back in your early part of your career. But over time, you guys um, have been in, involved in international expansion and bringing tons of businesses and projects from China to the U.S., back and forth from the U.S., to China, all over the world. You're a pioneer in international merchant banking. You understand cross-border transactions, mergers and acquisitions, blockchain technology, energy. You've been doing it with real estate and with businesses pre-crypto, pre-Bitcoin. I think you've done hundreds of transactions and and we've been able to work together on so many projects. We have a project right now that we both co-invested and co-advised. You've done so much more work than me, so thank you for for the amount of work that you've done on Casper and Casper Labs and the Casper Network. We love it. Uh, how are you doing today? Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Like, I mean, you know, BTC Miami was amazing and everything that's been going on. It's been a really amazing ride for the past 18 months. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's like I've we look back on the past 18 months and now that we have a little bit of a breath of fresh air, we're a little bit more relaxed. We kind of look at it like, wow, we... Like it was a great, like if that was a mini bull market or if we're still in this, like, I feel like all the past 10 or 11 years has just been this one epic bull market. It never really just take takes like breathers or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I can't even like, if I think back 12 months ago, I feel like it's like five years ago. Uh, it seems like a totally different time, obviously. 18 months ago was the world was totally different as well. Um, it's like we just lived almost a decade in the past year and a half. I feel like it's it's amazing. There's a lot of news right now going on uh, in the world as it relates to to like the, you know, the great hash rate migration. And from the outside looking in, it looks like China's taking a, a negative approach to, to crypto and blockchain technology and Bitcoin and everything. But really, 
as you understand it, it's that's actually the FUD right there. There, tell tell us what it's like operating a business in China. What is this red line? Uh, uh, is it, I've heard that it's the world's largest regulatory sandbox. We've discussed that. Yeah, absolutely. So I live in Beijing. Um, you know, I went to went to China first uh, to date myself, like back in 1991, and and eventually. By 96, I was in Beijing um, working in the Silicon Valley of China. Um, and it's like very similar to those internet days. We have the blockchain days. The approach of the Chinese government is top-down policy, but also there's like a wisdom of um, generational development. Technology is really important. And this FUD that China's against blockchain uh, is not correct. Like, I mean, it's you can argue that it's the biggest proponent of blockchain technology. Obviously, crypto, when you layer on crypto, becomes much more sensitive. Like unofficially, um, you know, you have to be highly sensitive of where the red lines are. So, you know, where let's compare it to the United States, where regulatorily uh, there's huge burdens on startups. It's very difficult. I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm an attorney by background. It makes like the regulations make even seasoned attorneys cringe. But China, you can grow organically as long as you respect the basic red lines, no fraud, money laundering, uh, capital controls, you know, renminbi is not a convertible currency. These types of things, as long as you respect that, what happens in China right now is, and it's been this since blockchain started, is you can grow organically. And you've seen some of the largest businesses, largest enterprises, the largest platforms in the world emanate from China. So saying that China's against blockchain, um, while the practicality is some of the biggest groups come from China. So it's like, it's a very incorrect way that that we approached it, because I feel like from how I, or I learned about China, you know, and, and Asia, really the larger, you know, Asian community in, in, in my school textbooks, that kind of frame how I look at things and how real I'm going to say I, because I don't want to speak for anyone else, um, where that approach was incorrect. Whereas it was like China's trying to kind of figure things out as they go. Whereas you're saying there's a wisdom to everything. And as long as you stay within that box and stay within those lines, everything can work out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Back in the 90s, like internet was very sensitive to China too, uh, because it's information. But they opened up the door, and there's like a saying like Deng Xiaoping has: when you open the door, you let in some flies. There's an understanding of like you're moving toward and progressing. I think in China, it is very practical. I think the only way you're going to know it is to actually touch it, feel it, go there, live it. Um, you can't learn it from a textbook, and definitely not from the media. There's a, you know, you know, the media, there's a lot of FUD out there. The practicality yeah. is some of the biggest exchanges in the world are from China. Obviously, the biggest miners were from China. A lot of great, cool tech is from China. And the most IP, you know, the patent filings on blockchain are in China. So yes. th th there's a lot of organic growth. It's amazing. If it wasn't for China, Bitcoin as we know it today wouldn't be here. Just going back to 2011, 2012. Yeah, we had amazing communities here, in, especially in New York and San Francisco. Those were like the first really big communities of like physical Bitcoiners. But really, 
the Chinese communities and the Japanese communities were really eclipsing us by that point. And it wasn't until some of my friends who, who were Chinese Americans living here, who were using their connections, their language skills, their understanding of the of how information and how business is done in China because they understood it. Uh, that's how some of the first ASICs were able to start mining on the Bitcoin network. That's how some of the first businesses, that's how some of the biggest blockchains that we have today have been able to, to be successful. Um, and, and when I dive into it a little bit more, I think there is like a difference in views. And I, maybe you can explain better. Um, in the Chinese regulatory world between like permissioned blockchains and permissionless. So if you look at like Bitcoin as a permissionless, how is that viewed versus something like a permissioned blockchain? Okay, so first of all, I think um, in terms of like our investment thesis at Rocktree, we see a lot of innovation coming from the West, but actually it's the East that has the early adoption. That's where you see the earliest adoption. And so that's how uh, you mentioned Japan and China, how it's grown organically. You know, a lot of the things that occurred in crypto happened on scale in Asia and particularly China. In terms of permission and permissionless, that's more a top-down approach. So hmm. you've got the organic grassroots, nascent technology growing uh, amongst the real innovators. And then you've got like a top-down approach of government providing support, money, and even like directing which way. And so I think the preference uh, is to have permissioned uh, from a top-down approach, but permissionless from grassroots approach. Uh, you know, we, you were mentioning Casper Labs. So Rock, we helped Casper Labs set up a JV with the BSN, which is China's national blockchain, um, which came online uh, last year. And so, um, for, for Casper Labs, what they're doing with the BSN is having both permissioned and permissionless blockchain. And that's, a, you know, that's domestic and, and international yeah. as well. Let's talk about the BSN a little bit. It's, you're talking about a country that's supporting a whole blockchain-like ecosystem. On that scale, you don't see that anywhere else. Yeah, I, uh, I think Xi Jinping gave a speech on, on China uh, making blockchain a core technology in October, 2019. You know, since then, um, a lot of enterprises have been adopting blockchain. There's been a lot of money into the sector and, the, and something that is supported by the Chinese government and a number of SOEs uh, developed something called the BSN, which is China's national blockchain. It's domestic. It has like 200 nodes in 200 different cities right now domestically. And it's, and it's expanded internationally by partnering with like Ethereum, uh, some of the layer ones that we mentioned, like Casper Labs and some others as well. It's such a it's such an intriguing uh, uh, way to look at, at at how to support all of these projects um, from the top down instead of like where the government and and the people it's like. I guess what I'm trying to say is to have one regulatory body govern everything uh, it's it's extremely centralized in some ways, but if you're a crypto company, if you're a Bitcoin company trying to do business in the U.S. to deal with like 50 different states and 50 different licenses, like that's the other side of it, right? Right, and and that's exactly like that term regulatory. You know, China's the blockchain's largest regulatory sandbox. That's something sort of I coined, and it's not actually 
exactly true. It's not true. Mm. Like it's not officially a sandbox, but the way that it operates is a sandbox. Like you can't go out certain lines. There's certain red lines that you can't cross. And that becomes the walls of the sandbox. Now compare that to the United States. You've got all these different regulatory bodies, which then come out and say, okay, you know, Bitcoin's property, Bitcoin's, uh, you know, uh, currency, whatever commodity, whatever it is, a security. I mean, there's that joke that the CDC would end up saying Bitcoin's a virus. Like it's, it just, it just, every authority characterizes it as something that comes within their domain. And then you have to comply with everything. And so it becomes really difficult for startups to do that. That's, that's the whole idea of a sandbox. Like, especially in fintech, the regulatory costs are so high for startups that only the biggest companies can adhere to them or those startups that have like huge institutional financing. But we know the yeah. best innovation comes from small groups. This is a friendly public service announcement reminding you guys that if you're using Uniswap or OneInch or any of these other decentralized exchanges, you shouldn't be. You should be using our awesome sponsor, PowerSwap, because PowerSwap is a decentralized aggregator that sits on top of all of these different other decentralized exchanges to give you the maximum liquidity. But not only do they work on Ethereum, but now they work on Polygon and Binance Smart Chain. So you can do all of these type of crazy swaps, defining, you know, going from one token to another, to USDC, to USDT, uh, to wrapped Bitcoin, to all these different coins and tokens, all do it in a decentralized way. Furthermore, they're now integrated in the Ledger Live platform. I love these guys. I've been using PowerSwap for over a year now because you save all of those transaction fees every time you have to hit one of these blockchains for like approving your MetaMask or sending a transaction. PowerSwap like brings it all together. You predefine everything and then you hit submit on the smart contract platform and it does it all in one shot for you. So you can check them out at untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap. Thank you guys for making my show an amazing one. That's untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap. Wow, with a pretty crazy chaotic year behind us, the guys at Big Casino, my friends, are offering us 200 free spins for the Legacy of the Dead game. These guys are awesome. Over the past year, we've done promotions together from Valentine's Day all the way to St. Patrick's Day, and from celebrating all the different holidays in between, we've been doing crazy promotions, giving away Teslas, like three of them, and all you have to do is go to untoldstories.link forward slash bitcasino, hit the rewards section, and claim your 200 free spins on the Legacy of the Dead game. These guys have been helping out Untold Stories for over a year now. Fun, fast, and fair gameplay. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tron, and Litecoin. I mean, you got everything. Go have some fun. Untoldstories.link forward slash bitcasino. With all of this wisdom, though, I'm trying to, to understand why the whole mining ban. I feel like there would have been a better situation and a better like solution than 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 having this crazy amount of hash rate leave China. We're really like, it's not just about like these machines leaving. You're talking about thousands of jobs, probably tens of thousands of jobs yeah. that are lost overnight. Yeah, I know a lot of them. It's funny. Yeah, you hear like the Chinese community is moving to West Texas now. Yeah, it's great for a lot of people, but most people I'm talking about the, the managers who ran the data centers and their families like why? Okay, so this is like a good illustrative point and something I think like your listeners would like to hear. The, the media in the West reports, okay, this is an attack on Bitcoin, it's crypto, China's government's anti-crypto. But what happened is June 3rd, the NDRC, which is like national 
state planning at the central government level announced that there will be new restrictions on curbing energy consumption only to national priorities. So this is not about Bitcoin or Ethereum proof of work uh, mining. It's about all energy consumption across the country. And so this is a policy directive. And then the application of that was very swift. That came out yeah. June 3rd. And then by, Situ by June 25th, all of the miners in, in Sichuan province were shut down. Xinjiang a little bit before, uh, Inner Mongolia yeah. even before that. So this is, this is not so much about clean energy and energy and, and fossil fuels. It's about energy. It's a policy. This is a directive. And it's a, it's, you know, it's a planned economy. That's the way China works. And so I like, I think it was, I forget if it was you or someone explained it to me where it's like, you know, the, the Western view about China is like, you look at the government of over there, it's like, they do whatever they want. But in this situation, specifically, I forget, I forget who explained it to me. Uh, it was so perfect. It was like, here you have the Chinese middle class and the Chinese middle class doesn't want to live with shitty smog all the time. And so they pressure the, their government, you know, yeah. just because there's one doesn't mean that there is no government pressure the government to say, hey, we need to have a smaller carbon footprint. We don't want to live in shitty air anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. we had been in the past, you know, decade or two. And therefore all of this like highly, highly, you know, they have to go towards the lowest hanging fruit. And what's the lowest hanging fruit of uh, it's using the most amount of energy right now is Bitcoin mining and other industries too, right? Were there other industries that had to be turned off? I don't know the answer to that, but like this I'm was sure a there were some. There yeah. were absolutely. This was a national directive, and definitely factories have to figure out how to consume yeah. energy better. They don't want blackouts, and it's a national strategic thing. Yeah, well, I, I never grew up with rolling blackouts. You know, that's a common thing. Whereas Friends in South Africa, Puerto Rico. No, I'm not to moving Puerto to Puerto Rico. Rico. Like a four month rolling blackout. I don't want to deal. I love Puerto. I, I don't want. I don't like the term "move to" because that implies like, like you have to like, like be there all the time. I don't know. You can be. I guess because I moved to Florida. It's, Bro, it's, we were in. You were in New York for Sandy, right? Yeah. Remember those days? Like that the whole the entire blocks were down. I know. We had about ten days, I think. There are very few people that I I can actually talk to about Hurricane Sandy because I was in Brooklyn where yeah there was, there was flooding. It was crazy. We got we got like our uh, our condo was right in the blackout across the street. It was all lights. So like for us, you know, during Sandy. But anyways, back to China. No, no, no. I love I love I'm just you're, you're bringing me back to to days that where I remember during Hurricane Sandy, I was working at my cousin's uh, warehouse doing daily checkout, like just e-commerce stuff. But it was in that office where um, I so heavily used IRC in the early days of Bitcoin to just do Bitcoin. Everything was an IRC back then uh, that when BitInstant first launched, I had the the CTO. It was only just two employees, me and the CTO. And I was working in that office in, in my cousin's in the warehouse over there. Um, I had him like send a like the thing would send me a ping in my to my IRC nickname every time we got a new order because I just didn't want to bother with leaving IRC. I was such a nerd all the time. So, but all of a sudden it started taking over and then we create our own channel within one of the networks that, on the servers that I was on. And then we just overloaded because we were getting like every 30 seconds for a yeah. two year period from 2011, 2013, we calculated that every 30 seconds, someone was walking, walking into 
uh, a physical location in the U.S. somewhere to buy Bitcoin. And it was like three, four hundred dollars worth every Amazing. 30 seconds for like a year or a two year period. It was crazy. Um, how does how does how is like Bitcoin and crypto viewed uh, like from the normal like like Chinese middle class community? How do they view our whole industry? I think from the middle class. OK, I mean, you know, crypto everywhere is a very grassroots uh industry and i think like something that you mentioned like just uh, you know uh, people who are into blockchain the most beautiful thing about blockchain to me is no matter where i am like prague new york beijing shanghai uh you know bangkok wherever it is like the ethos is the same a lot of our values and beliefs are the same not entirely the same but it's the same type of issues everywhere like you get a lot of fud in the paper so like yeah. people People, middle class in China would have certain reservations, but Chinese, mainland Chinese are very practical and they love technology. So like I said, like in China, one of the biggest strengths is people are early adopters. So there is a wider selection of people who actually know how to use crypto or are aware of Bitcoin than the United States. And it's because people are willing to adopt to new technologies and they like it, and there's a profit aspect to it, learning, it's exciting. I mean, it's fast-paced. You know, China speed is faster than US yeah. speed, right? Like just generally. Just everything so, moves I'll... at a very quicker pace. I like the slower, that's why I moved to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I like slow. I fell asleep at a Walgreens the other day. I was just waiting in line, and there was someone in front of me, and she was like talking to the guy, and I was like, just, I just because there's no rush anywhere, but you're right. It's completely faster, early adopters. Like I said, like the invention of the ASIC, the ability, you know, a perfect example. No one in those, and from 2010, from 2000, I would say 2012, when 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 application-specific integrated circuit machines were, were figured out that they could be the next wave of mining from GPU and CPU mining, no one was willing to take the risk in the U.S. or anywhere to build out, because you have to build out a whole conveyor belt supply chain system. It's like a few million dollars. No, only in China. They were willing to. Exactly. So the, definitely the early adopter spirit is there. And this Risk is like. taking. Yeah. Uh, explain to me how like the whole digital renminbi will work, because it, like you said, it's not a convertible currency. So will you know, do you see the U.S. eventually launching like a digital state, you know, their version of the stable coin? Uh, will other countries do it? Are we going to move towards like a whole stable coin world? Because China's doing it. They're the first. Absolutely. China is the first. Uh, it's a purely domestic currency at this stage. It's not international. Um, it's being rolled out in a number of cities on test cases, including Beijing very recently. Um, you know, and it's innovation, right? And it's the direction that the entire planet is going to go. Everybody on this podcast who's listening to or watching it knows that. You know that. I know that. It's just a matter of time. I mean, is it 50 years from now? Is it 30 years from now? Is it 10 years from now? Um, you know, but things move pretty fast in blockchain. So China took the lead on that. Uh, it's, you know, um, it's years ahead of anybody else, which means like even the United States you, in, in blockchain years, you could say it's decades ahead. Um, yeah. it's, it's great. It's great for, you know, the belief in the technology and also like that value can now be transferred digitally and it's much more efficient. And we need to all keep working together. Uh, you guys at Rocktree, uh, really specialize in that. You have this huge multi-billion person, trillion, 
trillions and trillions of dollars of value uh, there, this completely misunderstood market by the West, unfortunately, especially nowadays, um, and for especially for those Americans who aren't like as politically and tech savvy, don't know where to get information from, they see it from the mainstream media, you know, you might as well put a, a bunch of masks on 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 some Chinese on some Chinese people because the way the way the way America demonizes everyone else during these times, I don't like that. And I don't care who you are or what you are. I don't believe in demonizing because it wasn't very long ago that you were demonizing me as a Jew and killing me. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a cycle of life. We demonize a certain people. We start ki- how how long until we start killing them, right? Yeah, I think so. Rocktree invests into projects that are at the nexus of greater China and North America. Okay. If you've got that blockchain market, that accounts for like 70% of what I would say liquidity, a lot of the innovation. I mean, that's that is a big chunk of the entire blockchain world. The problem is that for greater uh, mainland Chinese, actually, like US is not and North America is not that easy to operate in the real local guys. And for sure, for Westerners, China is like a black box. It's very difficult to operate because like the business methods are so different, obviously language differences. There's just a different way of doing things. And so what we love to do that, I mean, what Rocktree loves, loves to do is we like to find the top blockchain projects, invest in them at an early stage and help them accelerate their growth in China. Because if you're going to be a top blockchain project globally, if you're Chinese project, you're not in North America. If you're a North American project, you're not in China or a Western project, you're not in China. You're not like a serious global top tier blockchain project. You have to be global. That's that. That's the way it goes. Uh, in terms of what you're saying, like it's for me, my life mission beyond just blockchain is to be able to unite people, to bridge people. Yes. It's so important. And so what you said, like in terms of scapegoats and creating a common enemy, that is the most abhorrent thing to my DNA. Because in the end, if you can rise above all the FUD and all the noise, we are human beings. And the, the, the difference, the, the, the similarities are like, you know, 50,000 years of evolution, a million years of evolution, not 400 years of history, 5,000. Oh my That's God, you're minutia. so right. Right. And yeah, so not political our, history going back only a hundred years. We have millions of years as humans together. Exactly. Holy shit. Exactly. So that's our common oh history. That those are our similarities, but then people get us to look at the differences and fear them. But actually, like that's the reason why we have all these countries and and races and, and languages, because we can learn from each other. Like you said, China was the one first to step step up with the ASICs. But, you know, there might be other things that Americans did and things that people in Prague did or, or, or you know, Indonesia or whatever. Like it all contributes because we yeah. have a different way of looking at things. It's very, really good. I mean, I, it's, it's so interesting and so nuanced. And I love I love learning more and understanding. I love my favorite thing in the world is when I realize when I've not been brainwashed, but when I've learned something and believe something for so long totally. that was a statement of fact. And then you're like, oh, wait, not that maybe that whatever that belief was wrong or right, it doesn't matter. But I like recognizing when totally. when I could break free of that. I don't know what that is called, but I like when I can break free of those things. So so here's like, um, well, so how do what's the difference between how an American looks at 
we look at our money and our government versus it's a very nuanced question, but like how like, you know, uh, uh, the normal Chinese citizen looks at their government or their money. Okay. I just want to go back to something you said, oh, yeah, Charlie, sorry. which is, you know what? Um, like one reason why you and I, uh, can have these types of conversations. You're that guy who can break through that matrix. You know, you can red pill things. You can like come to reality, come to terms. Oh, maybe what I thought before is not exactly right and break through um, maybe some conditioning you had because like that's, yes, that's right. an important thing. That's, that's important for people who are doing nascent technology, for example. Um, so I, sometimes your tweets, I quote them. To, to people, you know, oh, you. and, and they're revolutionary. Like they're really, the thinking is very advanced. Um, with respect to, I mean, the, the time that I learned the most in my life is when I first moved to China. Uh, but actually the time I learned even more in my life is when I moved back and saw that like things are actually very similar everywhere. Okay. It's just a matter of like style of doing it or education, but the basic principles are very similar. So, I mean, in terms of currency, uh, you know, it's a similar thing. Like, I mean, money is really important in China. Money is really important in the United States to people. Uh, and uh, it's a means of, of commerce. Um, the difference one is obviously Chinese currency is not convertible. And so- What does that mean? Means like you can't freely convert renminbi into US dollar or whatever it is. Uh, so, you know, you can now, let's say you go- to uh, overseas, you spend US dollars or you can convert it to Canadian or whatever it is, but officially like you can't do that with Chinese currency. And so, um, it, you know, people in China would have multiple currencies, particularly they would have like US dollar plus renminbi, but uh, hmm. Americans aren't like loading up on renminbi, like they're pretty comfortable just with US dollars. While every other, you know, a, a lot of other nations would, you know, have like, their own currency plus. That's maybe another US thing yeah. I never realized growing up. I always assumed that everyone had just their own currency in their own bank account, which is here in the U.S. Like, it's a weird thing to ask for a multi-currency account. It's a weird thing. Most banks don't even offer. Like, why would you want to maintain a euro balance? Why would you want to maintain a, you know, a renminbi balance? But not just China, but in Europe too. Most of the other countries of the world, they're holding at least two currencies. Their own right. plus another one. And speaking two or three languages too. Like that's the hubris that we have domestically, mm. right? Like our stuff is the ish, you know, like this is it. This, everybody should have <laughs> like US dollar, everybody should speak English. But guess what? There's a bigger world out there and the world is doing some amazing things. So, I mean, it's great to be, uh, you know, have English, have US dollar, but there's other things out there too. Well, like... I would think that coronavirus and everything where all the borders were shut down, I would have thought that it would have like put an end to that and maybe reversed a little bit. But, you know, to bring it back to Rock Tree and Casper, uh, that was a crazy year last year for 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 not just that project, but but a lot of companies that you're working with, you're able to really get in there and move over digitally. How are you able to do some of those things like AMAs, especially? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Casper is a great example. I mean, we've had other projects as well, DYDX and, you know, others that we've, we've worked with to expand. But, like, let's put it this way. Originally, when we invested into Casper 2018, like, the landscape was very different. I When I gave, let's say, an AMA or gave speeches, I couldn't even use the word decentralized in China because it was politically incorrect. Ooh. So a lot of what we were doing with Casper at that time 
meetups were in like more private locations that would be compliant because we're talking about tokens and so forth. Um, we built the community up during that time. So it became even bigger than Polkadot's community even before the launch of the token. Um, you know, uh, but eventually Chairman Xi, like President Xi Jinping uh, gave a speech to support blockchain and things started to open up. And that was really good. And, and a lot more activity developed in China related to that. So, you know, we were able to set up the JV with BSN, China's, you know, national blockchain. Um, and we had AMAs. I think, I don't know if you were, um, you saw that AMA just before. Um, did you see any of the, I think there was just before the listing as well. We, we listed the tokens on Chinese exchanges and Huobi and so forth. The day before the listing, we had some You had a AMAs. crazy AMA or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this. <laughs> A lot of people I know it's like more people in some of these, like, like our industry is so prevalent in, in some of these groups and AMAs and in online communities that they're bigger than, than political rallies. Like it's insane that our community, the global Bitcoiner and like crypto or crypto folk or whatever, we are becoming a social class in it of ourselves. And when you go in these groups, the only thing that you do to identify yourself is just to create like a nickname. So like who you are, your color of your skin, the shade, you know, like sometimes you see that now, uh, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, but like how dark or light you are. I hate that. I see that now in some places. It's just freaking stupid. Um, but like your sexual preference, your where you're from, all of it, it doesn't matter anymore in, in these communities. It never mattered. So when you're in some of these groups, it, it doesn't, it, not that you don't know, it doesn't matter because we are all human beings at the end of the day and all of our brains operate the same. And when we remove the barriers for our brains to interconnected work together, the electricity, the energy that's moving between, dude, we can do some crazy freaking things. Absolutely. I fully agree with that ethos. And I think like the way that I look at when a blockchain project can really be strong in the West and also Asia, uh, particularly greater China, I mean, it just, magnificent like the technology that develops the 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 retail the the adoption the community yeah. um you know the money everything like it's just much more powerful it's like you know you see mixed babies are beautiful because they come from like totally different dna together because you can get the attributes of both sides that's what i love to create mixed babies something that has like the strengths of uh, you know, Asia, greater China and the strengths of the West, you know, obviously I, I also like to create mixed babies in real life too. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> my, congratulations. my wife is Chinese. <laughs> uh, I, um, I had a guest on the show, I think a day or two, yes, uh, a day or two ago. And he worked for Sir Richard Branson for like a decade from, and built, built Virgin Galactic from like start to finish. And now he's doing crypto or you wouldn't even believe it. Um, and he said, and I said, why, why space? And his answer was, Sir Richard Branson's whole like ethos in life was he wants every, he wants to put people, he wants them to go out there and then he's going to tell every pilot to tell everyone to turn around and look at that earth and say, so yeah. take care of that freaking thing before we go any farther. Totally. That's literally why he did all of that and yeah. why he wants to send people because at the end of the day, we need to look back on earth as a, as a whole and realize that at the end of the day, our political divisions, our, 
like societal divisions, our beliefs. It doesn't matter. Omar Ozden, thank you from Rock Tree. Thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Wow. Awesome, Charlie. Really enjoyed that, brother. <laughs>